Let's understand the world a little better. I'm your host, Timon Wunderlich, and with me is Scott Santens, UBI advocate and author of Let There Be Money, Understanding Modern Monetary Theory and Basic Income. Welcome, Scott. Thank you. Happy to be here. Um, let me first ask you uh, to dive in. Uh, what is universal basic income? What is your definition of it? Yeah, basic income is defined as a periodic cash payment that is unconditionally delivered to all on an individual basis without means tests or work requirement. So essentially, there are five characteristics to a UBI. It's a unconditional, universal, individually provided as cash um, to you know everybody. Unconditionally. So I think that's yeah. an important point. Uh, what, what do you think... Um, that should be implemented uh, in the U.S., I think, where you live? Um, or um, do you think it should be in, uh, implemented in the whole world? Do you think that's a general, uh, generally good idea? Yeah, I think it should be a foundational policy in every country. And w why do you think that is? Because I think that countries end up expending a lot of resources unnecessarily on things that would be avoided if people just had the means and the security that a basic income provides. So, you know, if you're looking at something like in undeveloped country, uh, it would certainly be more difficult uh, depending on the tax system, but it would be very beneficial uh, and better than, say, subsidizing goods um, like oil and, and grains and stuff and just making sure that people instead have the ability to purchase the, uh, those goods in markets. And when you're looking at something like a more developed country, something that even has like a universal healthcare system, basic income would actually reduce the resources put into the healthcare system because the healthcare system ends up treating to such a degree the lack of basic economic security. You know, it treats a lot of poverty, it treats a lot of inequality and insecurity and uh, you know, kind of the impacts of chronic stress And if you just made sure that people had this foundation under them, then the resources put into the universal healthcare system would go further and you wouldn't require as many. Same thing with education too. Like education is certainly something that every country needs to have as well. And so much, like so many students that go through the educational system, they may have poor outcomes, like outcomes that wouldn't be, that are that are worse than if we had a basic income in place because say, you know, if a, if a student goes to school, uh, they're hungry, they're not going to be able to focus on their studies. And if their household is, is full of stress, uh, their parents are, are just busy constantly trying to get by. can't really help them with their homework. Um, then you see reduced educational outcomes. So like we're, we're, let's, let's say in a non UBI system, Uh, let's say the average kind of outcome is essentially like a C. Um, but if you had a basic income, then, you know, the average would be more like, you know, a B plus or, or B minus or B or something like that. Like you would see better outcomes on average with all these students going through the system. Interesting. So the idea is also that it therefore uh, self-finances it in, uh, itself in a way. To a large degree, yeah. It, it, it's very interesting um, to consider just to what degree that is, and there's certainly a lot of variance depending on the uh, country of implementation, the context uh, of that economy, 
the amount of the UBI, you know, the the design of the taxes and things. But um, in general, I think that you that we would expect to see savings in the form of reduced healthcare expenses uh, and better educational outcomes, and even um, increased economic growth, higher productivity. These things. Interesting. Also, inc- uh, increased um, economic growth. Why? Why is that? Yeah. So this is for a couple things. First of all, you have something uh, called the multiplier effect. So. Uh, this is, again, it depends on the amount of inequality in the country. Uh, in a high inequality situation, uh, GDP growth is actually being pushed down by the fact that basically only the richest are purchasing and a lot of the rest of the economy is left behind. So if um, you know, there's, there's various measurements in the U.S., a, uh, a dollar spent on, let's say, an additional bonus to uh, high income, you know, earners uh, in the you know top one percent uh, adds thirty nine cents to the economy. And if you provide that same dollar instead to someone earning you know a minimum wage down in the the bottom quintile, then the impact of on economic growth is um, uh, about three times that. Um, $1.30. So you also see that kind of impact in a lot of other places where there's a testing of um, you know unconditional cash transfers uh, and, and similar programs like child allowances. So as another example, like in Canada, uh, every dollar spent on their, their child benefit uh, actually results in $2 uh, to GDP. So it's just... Uh, a dollar at the bottom, you can imagine how it just is, is spent, like a lot. Like someone goes to the store, that becomes someone's wages, and that person spends it. And then, you know, that gets just spent and spent and spent. And it, and it it causes or catalyzes all these economic transactions. Whereas if someone at the top has this dollar, it's kind of basically just sitting there. Um, so you can see a lot more economic growth, a lot more economic activity by making sure that you know, more people in the in the economy have a have a greater ability to actually express demand. So it also benefits uh, the people at the top in the end. Right. It all still ends up going to the top, which uh, again, where you want taxes to be in place, and starts back at the bottom again, and you're constant this 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 virtuous cycle of economic activity. And I would also add too that we also see a lot of increased entrepreneurship, which is another impact of this. So. And um, in this can actually be quite large and, and impressive. And in, in Namibia, their UBI pilot uh, entrepreneurship quadrupled, and in the India UBI pilot, um, treatment villages uh, had tripled the entrepreneurship of control villages. And you, those were in, in in these in in particular economies. Let's say where it was essentially kind of capital deprived, like. You know, there's a, a would-be entrepreneur, but they have no access to capital, so they can't start a business. And even if they were going to microloan, they could start a business, but then who are their customers? So in an example of like the the Namibia EBI villages, um, there was actually, this is a real example where, where a woman went out with her first payment and used it to buy flour and yeast and uh, created a makeshift oven and started making these little miniature loaves of bread uh, and as her new business. And because everyone else in the village had money to spend via their own basic incomes, then that ended up being a very successful business. So just imagine in the economy at large, 
you know, how many businesses have failed, not because they weren't providing like a product that people wanted, but just because maybe they, their customers lack the ability or lost the ability in order to, you know, afford that discretionary income to purchase that stuff. So I would expect in a, in a UBI economy, there'd just be a lot more entrepreneurship. There'd be more competition between businesses uh, competing over those customers. And yeah, there'd just be more economic activity in general. That's actually a really interesting point. I wanted to come to uh, to that later on, um, be, because I, I thought about this beforehand. Obviously, before this podcast, um, I live in Germany where uh, we have um, hard spheres, so that's something different uh, than the UBI. But it's a um, social welfare um, system, and I actually know a few people, um, elderly people, um, who are who are benefiting or who are on that system, and. Um, Some of these also um, have uh, have used that income to uh, to start uh, side hustles or to try to get out of uh, this social uh, uh, welfare program um, by by starting something on their own. And um, but I often or sometimes um, and note these are just my own experiences uh, saw the problem that um, people um, started a side hustle that doesn't necessarily bring enough value to others as that they then can uh, live off of it. Because uh, obviously, if you provide values to, to others, uh, people will give you value back, or that's a, at least the idea, um, or perceived value to at least. And um, that that there's just because people are active or um, are not doing nothing when they get uh, provided a universal basic um, income, um, it doesn't mean that they are providing value to others, right? Yeah, true. Um, it, it, that's true in the in a world without basic income as well, and it's also true on the flip side of that. There's so much unpaid labor that is going on that's actually very valuable to society that is entirely unrecognized and goes without compensation. Um, so when it comes to a basic income, I think one of the important components of that is that it does essentially recognize all the unpaid way unpaid labor. Yeah, especially care work, mostly done by women, in um, in a way that that enables it and recognizes it. So um, it's just kind of interesting how, let's say, the economy uh, can recognize the work of of two paid care workers watching each other's kids, um, but then if they were to watch their own kids, then the economy would shrink and people would consider them not to be doing anything. So the idea in general that paid work is somehow better than unpaid work is false, that there's a lot of volunteering and stuff that's actually quite good. And then it's also a case that, yeah, there's a lot of paid work going on that isn't necessarily valuable and can even be damaging to society. And I think that's one of the important aspects of basic income too, is it gives people more power to actually make the, that choice. Like they can actually choose, do I want to pursue unpaid work? Or do I want to pursue this job I currently have that I feel maybe is damaging or maybe isn't really contributing anything, and maybe I can do something else I feel is more valuable and contributes more to society, and maybe that new job actually pays a little bit less, but like they're in their current job right now because they need that, you know, needs to pay enough for them to do it. So it can actually subsidize this work that doesn't pay as much, that should pay more, that is very valuable to society. And yeah, in general, there's always going to be 
uh, economic activity that maybe, you know, doesn't quite work out. You know, there's all sorts of businesses that people start that fail. But um, I think in general, it's better to make sure that people have the capital and the, um, you know, they will, the ability to take that risk without fearing what happens if they fail. And also the ability for customers to be able to express their support for these businesses. That is really interesting. I really like that um, idea. That um, I, I, I mean, I, I don't know. Did you uh, have made research on this? Uh, if people actually choose, um, or maybe choose less uh, less well um, compensated jobs for jobs that are uh, that they themselves see as maybe more ethically ethical. I haven't seen a whole lot of of like you know studies or something looking at this um I, i just think it 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 makes a lot of sense and there are kind of hints in the experiments that we've seen so um as some examples of this um there's all sorts of studies of course that look at the impact on work of basic income that's like one of the key concerns that people have is oh will people stop working will people work less if they have a basic income and basically across all these studies in general, it does not have that impact overall and can often actually have an increase on work overall. Um, but there are certain people that do respond to basic income in um, larger ways when it comes to paid work. Uh, two examples of that are students and new mothers. So if you're if you're a high school student, let's say, and um, and you start receiving basic income, then a lot of these a lot of students maybe are in the labor market because their households don't have enough income. So they're actually have dropped out of school to pursue um, paid work to help the family get by. And what we have observed repeatedly is that these students can actually drop out of the labor market and then go back to work. I mean, back to, to school and finish their, finish their um, studies and go on to pursue higher education. Um, This actually, this impact was so large in the Canadian uh, income experiment in Dauphin that uh, that at one point the graduation rates exceeded 100% in high school, um, and that was only possible because you had all these people that had dropped out previously that came back to actually finish. So the question there is, you know, is that bad for society for people to quit their jobs and go to school to increase their educations. And clearly that's an investment that we know is 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 very valuable to society and leads to even higher paying jobs and you know better uh, for the economy. And the other example being uh, new mothers. So this, this is especially true in the US where we don't have any kind of real maternity leave policy. Um, you know, some businesses might, but the federal level, we have no maternity leave policy. So, um, in 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 these kinds of areas, um, if a uh, if a woman has a child and is currently employed and there is no ability to do that, then they use the basic income uh, to effectively uh, create a paid maternity leave for them. Like they're able to have that money and focus on on you know being a a, a good a good mother to their you know infants. And there again, is that not work? Like, is it bad for society to quit a job in order to um, be a parent, especially during those very you know early months of a child's life? 
again, that's like an investment that pays quite well in return on investment down the road uh, in health and, and higher economic outcomes and all of that. So like those are two examples of people who, who like can work less, but then if you look at it in a different way, then clearly it's actually good. Um, but overall, um, you actually see a lot of people uh, actually work more. And so this can be like a, in the Stockton pilot, this was observed where uh, recipients of the basic income um, found full-time employment at twice the rate of those in the control group. And uh, kind of an, an example of how this can be is uh, one of the participants described how they were working like a part-time job. And because of that basic income, which was only $500 per month, but because of that basic income, they felt they could afford to miss that day of work to actually go to this interview and apply for this full-time job, which they were able to get. And so in, in that way, we can consider that there's a lot of, of jobs that people would prefer that would be better matches that they essentially can't afford to take the risk of losing whatever they have right now in order to pursue that job that they feel is a better fit. You talked a lot about these pilots. Um, how, how did these or some of these actually uh, look like? So they, they took, for example, a little part of a, or a region of a, of a city and then um, everybody in that part of the town um, received universal basic income so some 500 ish um uh in, in income in that region or or higher or lower or could you maybe give an example for of one of these studies yeah there's a lot of variance in the way that these pilots are designed and like i prefer saturation pilots and a saturation pilot being this kind of more universal pilot where you do take let's say an entire village um, and provide them all with a basic income. I feel that that really gets at some some bigger impacts that kind of aren't observed in more kind of you know non-universal, non-saturation non-saturation site settings. Um, as an example of this, like as a kind of a, a saturation site observation, is um, you see a lot of reduced crime. Um, in the Namibia pilot, crime was reduced by 42%. And in the Canadian saturation pilot, Dauphin, that was um, reduced by 37%. And when I say saturation in, in Dauphin, that was the entire town of Dauphin. Uh, that was, I, I believe, the population was like, was like around four to 5,000 people. Uh, the Namibia pilot, that was a village of 1,000 uh, the India UBI pilots were multiple villages um, and altogether thousands of people. And again, those were full village-wide. Uh, Stockton was more of a um, more of a targeted program by income. Uh, so it's not like they, they looked at everyone in Stockton or anything like that. It was really just selecting uh, 125 people that um, I believe there they were earning under the median income. Um, in that area and just provided them unconditional cash of $500 per month uh, for um, two years, a little over two years. Uh, in any of these or after any of these studies, um, did they actually implement it at so so uh, somewhere um, 
universal basic income for a longer no, time? No, it's been implemented nowhere after a pilot. Like a lot of these pilots are just experiments and um, you know trials, and usually via philanthropic dollars. Um, maybe kind of local government gets involved, um, but nowhere has a has a government, especially at the national level, decided to go ahead with this. Um, the closest anywhere uh, I like to point out is the the annual Alaska dividend um, that actually qualifies as a basic income because it meets all the characteristics. It's a you know it goes to everyone in Alaska every year, uh, regardless of income levels. Uh, no work requirements, and it's an annual cash distribution to every single person in a household. In fact, in Alaska, the amount uh, for kids and adults is the same, whereas in a lot of basic income pilots, um, kids usually receive like half the adult amount or a third or something. Um, so that's the closest, and it's been operating since 1982. And it's not like they tested it first, you know, because they didn't at no point have they seen it as a basic income and people don't really think of it as a basic income. It just is one because it meets all the characteristics and it's it's very effective. And there's all sorts of impacts that have been observed from that, too. Like, for example, there's been a study on the work impacts of the Alaska dividend, and it turns out that it has increased um, part time employment by 17 percent. And there's been no positive or negative impact on full-time employment. But but nowhere else it has been implemented. Um, no. Why is that? So what are the counter arguments in a way then? I mean, there's there seems to be a reason why people are not um, hopping on the train. Yeah, that's the real question. <laughs> like, what what is it that really prevents... Uh, especially lawmakers position in positions of power to to consider this and um i think an answer to that it goes to what I, the response that i've seen um from particular people in power when it comes to these kinds of decisions and um so if you go back to the 1970s when nixon proposed a basic income guarantee for families in uh, 1969 and this, uh, it went through the House of Representatives and was, was passed there twice uh, to the Senate, and then the Senate needed to pass it. And if the Senate had passed it, then Nixon would have signed it into law, and we would have had a, a, a basic income guarantee for families back in 1970 or 1971, um, you know, depending. And the the chair of the Senate Finance Committee um said or asked the question who will iron my shirts with a basic income you know if people had this unconditional cash then couldn't they say no to you know what is essentially accepting cheap labor you know they'll the excuse is that they'll stop working entirely but of course really if you anytime you want someone to do a job all you have to do is pay them enough so it's really in a matter of who will work for me cheaply, not who will work for me at all. And I, I think that's kind of where a lot of this comes from, is it, it definitely impacts the existing power structure. You know, there, where a lot of these politicians have, have actually gained power within. Like, if you're used to the existing system, you don't want to rock the boat, because uh, then you may actually not benefit from that. 
from the new status quo. It's a it's very much like a a a greater distribution of power. I would say, um, you know, it's 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 putting more decision making ability, more uh, power and freedom in, in in individuals' hands in an entire country. And there's a certain concern of what will happen. Interesting, but with um, automation and with uh, globalization, um, isn't there now a new opportunity for UBI then? Oh, absolutely. But still, you, you still have all those people um, that will benefit from AI in a way that, you know, they'll get richer. Um, no, of course, but I'm, what AI I mean is... AI is an, is an inequality-generating machine. Is what I, and so, you know, if you are someone who looks at that and sees kind of dollar signs, you know, then you may not want even to, you know, what is to share the benefits of AI you know, more equally, like, of course, that should be shared more equally, like we should see this as a as a dividend, where, you know, we essentially all trained the AI together through the all the the content and, and information and stuff we produced both current generations and previous generations. Um, and we should want this machinery, this technology to essentially work for all of us. But there are still people that would not want that, like, you know, You can never have too many billions, right? <laughs> of course, but what I meant is the um, the cheap labor you mentioned earlier. Yeah. Um, now that that can be now done by maybe a uh, a uh, robot, for example, who who cleans your shirts. Then, or um, if if it's about uh, labor that uh, somebody writing you an email, so you have a personal assistant, you can maybe get that. Not that that is morally better, maybe, but you can uh, get it overseas. Um, uh, through uh, via globalization. Um, so isn't that argument not? Does it still work? The cheap well, labor argument. I mean, yeah. It, 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 the the concern there, um, you know, is, is first of all, like I do want machines to actually be doing this work. You know, like if someone says, "Who will clean the toilets?" Then the answer is, "Well, like." A self-cleaning toilet would be great, or like toilet cleaning robots; those are nice. <laughs> you know, like if we can actually create machines to do that, then great. Then the question, of course, is what happens to the people, people's incomes who were doing those things? And so that question becomes: you know, like, does the person who is asking the question of who will clean my toilet, do they care what happens once they're no longer paying that person? And are they also concerned about? the ability of that person to then demand a higher wage, you know, elsewhere. Mm. Okay. I, I understand. When was this, um, uh, this discussion with, uh, Nixon? What year? Yes. Yeah, so he proposed this in 1969 and, uh, yeah, it, ha it passed the house installed in the Senate in 70 and 71. And since then there, there was no other case in, in the U S at least where, um, it was brought upon. No. Well, Not really. That was that was the closest that it came, and there were a series of pilots across the country in there in the seventies. And you know that was there was uh, pilots in New Jersey and Seattle, Denver, um, Gary, Indiana, um, uh, rural North Carolina. There were lots of different um, things that we learned during that time. And then politically speaking, there was, um, uh, what was his name? Uh, I'm not remembering, but um, gosh, 
yeah, he there was someone after Nixon later in the seventies that uh, proposed a um, a demographic model of one thousand um, dollars per household, must um, have been like per year too, like back in the seventies, and um, yeah, I mean he didn't win clearly, but that was a policy proposal that you know was there in the seventies. I would say nothing really came up through the eighties. Um, and until like it kind of went off the radar until Andrew Yang ran, you know, and then kind mm-hmm. of brought it back. And in the future, do you see a trend where it, where it uh, might come back or where it actually, uh, th- this time will, will get passed? I think the, the pressure will only continue to build with, um, you know, the advances of AI. Like I, I, I don't think that we'll see the same kind of thing where it'll just disappear again. Um, I do think that you'll just kind of see more and more pressure because we'll just be seeing this increased inequality and increased uh, precarity um, as a result of of AI and the the disruption that I think that it'll have um, on the labor market. Um, I, I don't know if you um, heard about it, but in, uh, in Germany is also another thing that's uh, currently being discussed that is a universal uh, inheritance, I would call it. Um, did you hear about it? The idea is, at, at, I think, not at 19 years old or 20 years old, um, uh, everybody gets uh, $10,000 uh, from, from the state. Um, I'm not familiar with Germany, but I am familiar with that in general. Like, it's a, it's a policy proposal here in the U.S. to call it baby bonds um, as far as there being some kind of, you know, capital allocation at, uh, you know, the age of adulthood. Uh, that, too, actually goes all the way back to Thomas Paine. Um, where that was what his recommendation was is that you know this was the late 1700s and he said everyone at the age of 21 should start with this amount of of income to start them off in life and it would be paid for he wanted to pay for it with an inheritance tax but um his argument like his into- his higher argument of, in agrarian justice is actually i think a, a to this day a great argument for basic income and yeah as far as like comparing these two proposals um, I like the idea of these capital grants. I don't see them as kind of alternatives. I think that, you know, everyone needs this, this lifelong economic security. You know, we all have basic needs on a monthly basis. Um, but getting infusions of like a lump sum, uh, are also very helpful and, um, can really help people get off on the right foot. In fact, um, there was actually some results, that just came out this week uh, that are the first results of the the, the largest and longest uh, UBI pilot, which has been taking place in Kenya uh, for the past seven years, where they're doing a 12-year UBI pilot across um, uh, like hundreds of villages and thousands of, of people. And um, they did three cohorts. And so they looked at a, a cohort that received a monthly income for two years, and there was another cohort that received that same total amount of money as the two-year group, but they got it all at once right at the beginning as mm-hmm. a lump sum. And then there was the 12-year UBI group where they were getting the same amount as the two-year monthly, um, but they knew that they were getting it for the next 12 years, and that will continue going on for the next um, five years. And really interestingly, the, the lump sum 
um, led to greater entrepreneurship effects than the monthly income in the two-year group. And a lot of a lot of uh, kind of better observations overall, except for the monthly group was um, you know less stressed. And uh, but the really interesting to see just how how useful that lump sum was. However, when you compare to the twelve-year group, um, the twelve-year group they're actually able to to voluntarily kind of self-organize lump sums through the monthly income by creating these kind of like uh, they're called Roscas, but they're these like kind of um, like group kind of wheels where everyone puts in, let's say a group of 20 people puts in an amount every month. And then each of those people like alternates so that, you know, one month they get the entire amount. And then the next month, another person gets the entire amount. And then next month, everyone gets the entire amount. So really interestingly, the long-term UBI is enabling people to choose to do these these lump sums and therefore seeing like the same positive impacts that are from the lump sums, but at the same time, because it's monthly and life and very long term, then people are seeing, you know, very um, um, great reductions in stress and improvements across all these other measures. And the entrepreneurship, um, uh, increase that was uh, still more so in the lump sum one than in the twelve year one. Um, the the lump sum and twelve year were more similar than the um, than the twelve year and the two year when it comes to entrepreneurship. Okay, so um, in general, your opinion, uh, you are uh, you think universal basic income? If you had to choose between the two. Um, is the better option. Absolutely. It, it's just, okay. uh, I see it as, an, as a foundational policy that other policies should exist on, on top of. And I think when it comes to something like a capital grant, baby bond, these kinds of things, that that's something to consider as an additional policy that can actually you know help people more. But what you don't want to do is withhold this you know monthly security, just provide someone a, a huge lump sum and then be like, good luck and you know ignore you know, all the, the negative impacts that could have been avoided with this monthly security. Now, I would assume in the, um, in these groups, in these test groups, there were also some people who, um, who weren't able to, uh, to, to give the value back uh, in a way, uh, by, by contributing in, um, th through, uh, some other work through, uh, entrepreneurship or anything. Did the, uh, people who, um, created more value, um, than they did before and then they received they compensate for them uh and i'm not quite sure what you're asking because i think it's also really hard to measure that you know like um you could again like if someone um has takes that that basic income and again maybe they quit their job and they do unpaid work or Maybe they just decide to do this. Um, there's no measurement for, you know, what are they giving back or something. Um, instead, oh. I would look just like kind of overall, you know, that's what I think matters is just like, what is the impact overall on society, on the economy of people having this? And just in general, you see just a lot more uh, 
business startups and um, a lot more economic activity and um, a heightened ability to focus on what matters. Uh, I guess my my question was on the uh, ROI on the return on investment in a way. If you if you can think of, uh, if it is possible to think through that problem in that sense, um, I mean you you just said um, unpaid labor then would not be uh, counted. So that is a fair argument. But uh, still, as you said, the uh, n number one argument against UBI, as I understood you, at least, um, was that people fear that others would um, be demotivated by that. Um, and not uh, contribute as much. And I also do think that uh, in, in general, people um, want to do something. Um, so even if they um, uh, if they have enough money, uh, at, uh, to let's say, uh, they um, they would generally um, be active. But that doesn't mean that they are necessarily. Um, if paid or unpaid, helping their society. So, for example, some some artists may. Uh, paint pictures but ju just for themselves so that's not that's obviously not a bad activity but it's not helping necessarily others at least yeah, but if, if you would give it's the interesting back maybe it's something different yeah no it's so uh, I, i've written about this before I, I call it like the um the quentin tarantino argument for for basic income which is this <laughs> this question of you know kind of looking at quentin tarantino imagine that he was like in a basic income pilot and <laughs> you know he just he spent his his um you know, much of his childhood and youth, like just watching movies, you know, like that was, he just loves watching movies. Yeah. And so if someone like looking at that just portion of his life, they're like, that guy is so lazy. <laughs> like, what is he doing? He's contributing nothing to society. And then later on, he becomes like an incredible filmmaker and it's formed by all that time that he spent watching movies. So I think that's important to consider is, is, even when we look at like a, an economic acti or an activity of any kind and we consider it as being somehow useless, we never know at one point that that is not the case. You know, you could be a professional gamer after playing video games for, you know, a long time. And then at that point of being like this professional esports player, then everyone's like, oh, how great. You know, he's contributing to society. He's earning millions of dollars. Like people love what he's doing. He's super good at it or she. And what is that like when it comes to the actual playing, you know, beforehand, it's useless considered to be. Um, so I think we have to take like a wider look at the fact that we can't really measure what is like useful to society and useless to society until we've looked at it, you know, a much longer time span. Like, you know, look at a person when they're, you know, 90 years old or something and just about to die or have already died or whatever. And then you look at their entire life and perhaps that's a more fair measurement to kind of like look at that point. But then, you know, taking a two year slice and judging people based on that, I don't think is a, is a fair way of, of measuring, you know, their contribution. That's fair. L looking more at the long term investment in a way. Still, I would say, uh, I mean, Quentin Tarantino and all um uh, I forgot what the other example was you mentioned. Um, uh, those are exceptions, aren't they not? Uh, I mean, not everybody can be this great um, director. Even if everybody would have the skills, um, I don't. I don't think everybody could be uh, um, could be contributing in that way because uh, people would choose at some point. Sure. Yeah. 
just like you know, if he if someone wants to be a a well known YouTuber or something, you know, then the a step one is you've got to actually create those videos, and you have to have time to create those videos, and you know, maybe you'll end up being successful, and and maybe you won't. But I, I do think it's important that you know someone who wants to do that should have you know a better ability to do that, and if it doesn't work out, they can always you know go on to something else. Um, and I think that, you know, that that doesn't hurt society and, in fact, could increase wages, too. And this is also something that's observed where, you know, if you if there's fewer willing workers to do wage work, um, this is actually from the these are from the 12 year uh, pilot findings, too, are that, um, you know, so many people actually pulled out of the labor market and started their own businesses that the available labor for for wage labor shrunk and then those businesses had to increase their wages you know to make these jobs more attractive and so i think that's a good outcome too like if if someone decides to just play video games or doing whatever like not only is that you know not hurting me and could end up being viable to society um through being a successful you know youtuber or whatever but it also would technically drive up wages if you know more people did that, and that also would make automation more attractive too, because that's another impact of you know when when wage labor gets more expensive. Mm. I, I, it's still not hard. I, I I understand your argument though, um, um, and I also um, I, I I thought about it in um, when when think of a uh, football player for example. Uh, if he would get um, finance to to train, and you, you don't know if he will be a- ending up in the NFL, but um, it right. might not be solely about that one football player. But um, if you finance uh, 500 of them or all of them, um, some will at least uh, provide great value in the end. Uh, so that may be um, that may be compensating that, like like an angel investor in some sort. So yeah. you're you're investing in a lot of companies, and most will fail, but one will will maybe um, uh, yeah compensate for the others. That reminds me of a of a story too that um, that that ties right into this is that uh, it was like on a radio show. I was listening. This um, minor league baseball player was um, talking about how they had to quit. Uh, the minor leagues, they never made it to the major leagues um, just because they couldn't afford it. Like the pay was was too low uh, to actually, you know, really go through life a- any longer, you know, earning that low wages and never knowing if you were going to make it to the majors or not. And, you know, the question is, maybe he could have made it to the majors. You know, we don't know. We just know he went as a position where he just couldn't afford to do that anymore. And I just, I, I feel it's tragic. Like maybe who knows where he would have gone, but I just hate how just the lack of economic security essentially made that decision for him. Mm. Yeah. There's something else I want to just mention too, because I feel it's an, it's important to understanding the, this kind of impact on work that so many people are concerned about. Um, you know, they listen to all the evidence in the world and they'll say, well, you know, sure that was there, but you know, would it actually work? for real and long-term and, and whatnot. And so the thing about basic income is that it is not withdrawn as you earn additional income. And that's not true with 
any kind of existing welfare benefit that's welfare benefit that's targeted to those with a sufficiently low income or something. And it, this is kind of easier to understand with, say, unemployment income. You know, you get unemployment income because you're unemployed. And let's say the income is $10,000 a year, you know, like some low amount. And um, then if that person who is seeking employment uh, gets a job offer and the job is pays $10,000 a year, then they would go from receiving $10,000 to getting 10,000, in which case they would be no better off accepting the job. And so why would you do it unless you like, you really want to do the job? Um, another, like an economic way of looking at that is saying that that's a a hundred percent marginal tax rate um, because of the fact that they're no better off with this job. Uh, basic income is different because it's this floor. So you start at $10,000 per year, let's say, and then a job offers you $10,000 a year, and now you're at $20,000 per year before taxes. And so you're better off accepting that job. And a way of looking at that, as far as marginal tax rates go, is that it could effectively be a 0% marginal tax rate, uh, depending on your tax regime, in which case you aren't punished at all with a basic income. And so yeah. once you understand that difference, then you don't even really need the data to understand that it just makes more sense with a basic income to accept a job. There's less of a work disincentive with that system versus the existing system where you can actually be very little better off or worse off by accepting a job. Yeah. I, I want to tell you also a story because it goes into the same direction just in Germany. I actually come from a low-income family myself um, where... Um, from one side, one part of my family um, also had to, um, at some point, accept um, unemployment payments or social social welfare. Um, and what happens is, um, if you're underage and your parents actually um, get these uh, the, these payments, then you also fall into that category. So um, your payments no longer receive a child. Um, Child payments. I don't know what that's called in the US. I'm sorry. Um, it, it, you you get a payment. Not usually, if you have chi uh, children, uh, you you get paid. Uh, I think two hundred dollars. Um, so that gets subtract subtracted, but you get um additional um income for for your child. Um, but uh, so now it's a case. If I was to work, or I actually wanted to work when I was younger, uh, when I was underage, um. That would actually be the income that I would would receive right. would actually be um, subtracted from that um, for, from that payment that my mother would receive. So, right, I could work, yes, but then my mother would have less money, and that that doesn't really like that. That's not an incentive for young right. children. That is, to, that's to, a strong to work incentive. Yeah. <laughs> Which it's actually the reason why I uh, then stopped working as I found this out because yeah. at, at first my um, um, my mom said, no, no, it's great when you're working and everything and you, you should be doing that. But, um, I mean, I, I saw the difference when you, when you're in a low income family, these few hundred dollars make a difference. Uh, like yeah. Euros in that case, it was like your mom was paying you because yeah. it was coming from her income and like, yeah, like, I don't want this. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> <Right>. like, <laughs> I want my employer to pay me. <laughs> yeah, and I, I find that absolutely crazy how that is still a uh, still a thing, and um, the government. Um, I, 
because there's a, 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 I don't know the exact data, I don't know the exact facts, but I know that a lot of people who come from low-income families in the um, in Germany who are or who are on their social uh, social welfare, um, their children actually also um, will later on uh, be become um, uh, will be using social welfare pr uh, programs, and uh, I think or I can um, I could explain my uh, explain that to me. Um, uh, for one uh, one argument i think would be that that uh that they don't uh you're not get you're not getting uh you don't you don't learn that uh work is important in a way or that you uh or you don't receive the benefits from work in a way also right yeah work should always benefit you and and you should actually be in a position where you can refuse a job that doesn't pay you enough you know like there's so many people taking jobs just because they need to survive and because of that, those jobs can have horrible conditions. They can have abusive employers. They can have, um, it could just be just a terrible job in general. Um, and it changes if like you actually have this, this bargaining power uh, to say, no, I'm not going to take that job unless it pays enough, unless the conditions are good enough, unless you treat me well enough. Um, so it's a big deal to, to lack that power and to, ha and to gain that power. Yeah. Well, uh, Scott, thank you very much. Um, if Before we go over to our second segment, so uh, some rapid-fire questions, um, is there anything I should have asked you that I didn't or anything else you want to add? Uh, I mean, we really covered a lot of the, the work stuff, and we only kind of touched upon the cost stuff, and... Um, we really didn't say anything about inflation stuff. <laughs> and those are kind of the main concerns. So maybe you might want to talk a little bit more about the, the cost and the inflation stuff if you want. Of course, of course. That's why I'm asking the question. So yeah, okay. um, inflation, I would have just assumed um, that if when inflation goes up, the um, universal basic income would also go up so that it would be adjusted or not. Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a... It's a simple way of making sure that the basic income keeps up with the cost of living by just adjusting for inflation. Yeah, and that's even how Social Security works in, in the U.S. But still people fear that you could have like this runaway inflation where you have to keep cranking up the amount, you know, at an ever-increasing rate. And then, you know, people fear this hyperinflation and stuff. And like that's at least in the in the U.S., maybe in, in, in Germany, um, you don't necessarily have that concern. But um, just to say a couple things about that, um, like, first of all, I, there, and this is ties to the cost argument too, is that people, people think that because everybody gets a basic income, then the cost of basic income is the amount of the UBI multiplied by the number of people. And therefore, that's the cost. It's the you know a very simple napkin math kind of estimate, but that's not the cost of basic income, because you have taxes involved too, and when you have taxes involved, then you have people who are essentially paying for their own basic income. In which case, you imagine depending on the the crossover point of of taxes and UBI, uh, if the amount of UBI is twelve thousand dollars per year, let's say then um, somebody's taxes as a result of UBI, um, you know, additional taxes could be $12,000, in which case they're no better or worse off 
than they were prior to UBI. And the government is not really spending anything on them. They're, they're, an, net, they're at net zero. So then, you know, above that point, beyond that point in income, then people are paying more in new taxes than they're receiving a basic income, in which case they don't have any cost. And then if you look at people who are, let's say, paying, you know, $6,000 to get $12,000, then what they're really getting is $6,000. And so you have to actually figure out that net benefit. And that's what the cost of a basic income is. Uh, And a lot of people don't kind of recognize that at the surface level. It kind of, you have to dig a little bit deeper in to see that the the cost of a UBI is the net cost, not the gross cost. Hmm. So depending on the, the, the tax um, taxes chosen and the reforms in the existing system. Um, so like, you know, as an example, you don't necessarily have to raise taxes. You could say um, drop tax subsidies instead of raising taxes, in which case you would have fewer tax expenditures and basic income instead of that. Uh, so then that wouldn't necessarily be a cost either. Um, so it, it really depends, but it's around... You know, it could be like 30% of the gross cost would be like the net cost. Um, you could kind of ta- calculate it as like a negative income tax too and say, okay, well, what would the cost of a negative income tax be where the phase out rate is like 40% or 30% or something like that? And then that's more, an, that's an accurate depiction of what the cost of a basic income would be paired with say a 30% flat tax or something like that. Um, so in general, the amount that's required for a basic income is much smaller than people think. And tying that in too with the savings from like reduced crime, um, you know, reduced healthcare expenditures, these kinds of things, then there isn't as much of an impact on, you know, consumer demand as people would think um, that who are worried about inflation. Uh, and again, depending on taxes and, you know, then there's a different amount of inflationary pressure when you're looking at, say, a fully deficit financed basic income versus a fully revenue neutral um, uh, basic income where every dollar is matched by a, a dollar of taxes. Like these also have different inflationary pressures. Um, but also another thing to mention is, uh, and this has been observed in experiments too, this was in the India UBI pilot where costs went down. Um and the reason costs went down is because, yes, people had more money, which people who worry about inflation then worry, oh, well, that's more money chasing the same amount of goods, and then therefore prices have to go up. But what happens, and what happened there, is that suppliers see that increased demand, and they say, oh, well, I want to make money, so I want to meet that demand with supply. And it's entirely possible, again, with the heightened entrepreneurship that we've seen, that you see a greater amount of supply increase than the demand increase. And when you do that, you see lower prices because supply has expanded so much more beyond demand. And you can see that um, as a potential as well in economies that can easily increase the amount of the um, their goods. Like, let's say their economic capacity is at... 60% or something. And so they could be producing more, but they aren't because the demand isn't there. But if you increase the demand, then let's say you go up to 80% of economic capacity, in which case you're still below 100% capacity, you're still able to meet that demand, you just had to crank it up a bit. 
So I point that out because it is possible that certain goods and services could actually get cheaper as a result of basic income. And certain things that you can't crank up supply would likely be more expensive. So let's say you know, you're looking at one-of-a-kind kind of goods, luxury goods, things of limited supply. You know, If you're selling something that there's only 100 of them, then you can't make any more than 100 of them, in which case it could cost more for each one. Um, so that's kind of like a wider look at the inflation question. Uh, then one thing would interest me in the longer uh, studies, uh, the, the studies that went for a longer time, um, did uh, were there some calculations made as to, um, I, I don't know the proper term, I would say GDP now, but obviously it's just a region, not the um, um, not the whole country. Um, as, did that increase drama uh, dramatically or were there some, um, what were the differences there? Was there anything calculated? Yeah, so de de there's a lot of different uh, calculations for, especially like the multiplier effect. And um, I would say on average, you're somewhere around $2 per $1, um, depending on the details. Uh, and, and this is true even for stuff other than basic income like in the u.s you know uh food stamps can also have an economic multiplier impact of of close to two dollars per one dollar um it's just a matter of of you know the nature of putting money in the hands of those you know with lower incomes and then how that you know gets spent more and more and more versus those at the top so yeah it's a it's a it's a commonly observed thing um and i would say it's on average around two dollars per one dollar Wow, but well, that's a that's a pretty good uh, return, is it not? I think so. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, also, I would add to um, it just. I think this is a good example of of um, these multipliers and kind of this wider picture kind of return on investment. Is that um, uh, you could probably look at this. You're talking about the. I think it's Kindergeld in in Germany that uh, provides to kids. Um, we don't have that in the U.S. We only like tested basically it for, we did six months of uh, the enhanced child tax credit in in the second half of 2021 and um, you know we it was essentially a basic thing for kids because it went to nine out of ten kids in the country and um, yeah we saw all these positive impacts um, one of the studies of this uh, said that if we if we were to actually implement this then we could expect an ROI of ten dollars per one dollar. So, you know, that's we spend over a uh, trillion dollars per year on the downstream cost of child poverty. Uh, multiple calculations, have, uh, multiple studies have looked at this to calculate what is like the true cost of child poverty. And we calculate it's over a trillion dollars per year. And the cost of actually just doing what we did for six months uh, was $100 billion per year. So it's, it's crazy to me to look at a $100 billion expense and say that's too expensive and then have no problem spending a trillion dollars per year. You know, it, it, this, this 10 to one uh, ROI, it, it, I think is just insane to say no to. So yeah, I'm curious what, what Germany has calculated for the um, economic benefit of a uh, Kindergeld when it comes to ROI. No, sadly, I don't know that. <laughs> um, so what um, I, I think we already talked about it and there was no, um, I, I don't, 
it, w it was hard to figure out, but I would still be interested in whether why um wh why there was no implementation of this uh, UBI for a longer time or um, com uh, complete integration. Um, because uh, because after this um, after this talk, I definitely think, oh, that sounds like a good idea, but maybe I'm not seeing the other side. Um, because I, I gotta be honest, this, this sounded <laughs> really good, but um, but still, there gotta be a reason why it's not implemented yet, right? Yeah, no, I mean, people ask me all the time, Scott, like, you say all these positive impacts of UBI, like, there's gotta be some downsides. And it's just, there, there aren't really these obvious downsides. I consider them to be eye of beholder downsides. And when I say eye of beholder, I mean, like, there's an example of, um, let's say in, um, it was both Namibia and India, where um, basically the only people who hated the program or those who hated basic income most were money lenders. And so, oh. you know, if, you're, if your business is essentially built on the existence of the scarcity of money, then the last thing you want is for people to have more money because no one's going to accept your 1,000% interest rate loans that they're desperate and only accept because they're desperate uh, if you have, you know, this basic income where you could, you know, choose otherwise. And so that to me is a good example of this eye of beholder. Same thing when it comes to, say, an abusive spouse. You know, like if you're an abusive spouse, you see over and over again that that basic income reduces um, domestic abuse because of this power, this heightened ability for for women to leave the house, these, leave these relationships. You know, if you're if you're getting abused and you're you're completely disempowered, you rely on your partner for your survival. Then you're going to continue to accept the abuse, and you can't get out of it. You're trapped. Um, but with a basic income, you can escape that. And so, if you're an abusive partner you're probably not going to like basic income either. <laughs> and so, you know, there are these negative impacts depending on the person who's actually, you know, looking at it from their perspective. Um, these negative income, these negative impacts that I would consider, you know, to be kind of like uh, society consensus, negative income, impact, negative impacts. They're just, they aren't there. You know, these, all these concerns that people have about these horrible things, like, um, Drug abuse is another one. You know, people think, oh, well, people will use this to buy drugs and they'll, you know, they'll drink more alcohol and these things. But this is a very, what this is a, you know, there's a lot of evidence behind this finding in particular, which is that you just don't see that when you provide unconditional cash to people. The, the general impact is that overall, uh, these, the, Expend, the, spending money on alcohol and drugs and these things actually goes down slightly. And you can understand that too, from this perspective of, you know, what is this really? You know, if you're, if you're abusing drugs, if you're abusing alcohol, um, a lot of this is self-medication. You know, you're, you're living a life that you don't want to be living. Uh, you're unhappy, you're stressed out, you're depressed, um, you know, thanks to impoverishment or, chronic stress and insecurity, um, a lot of that leads to these things. And so if you suddenly have sufficient income and you suddenly have sufficient security, then you don't look at that in the same way. You don't self-medicate as you would previously. And so that's why you see less of that. Um, 
but people still fear it. You know, people still think, oh, well, it doesn't matter what the evidence says. I think that if people get this, they'll use drugs and therefore I'm a good person for making sure that they don't have money to spend. Like, that's what we're fighting. Um, now over to the rapid fire questions. Um, note, some of these might not be related to um, UBI or your findings, but uh, are more personal. Sure. Uh, and I would be grateful if you could answer in around about two to three sentences so that they are really rapid fire. It's often hard. Um, let me start off. If you had a big billboard, let's say on Times Square, everybody would see it. What would you put on it? Uh, I like what Switzerland did, and they actually did do this. This was in Times Square. They, um, they put up the question, what would you do if your income was guaranteed? And so it's, yeah, it's just this question of getting people to think, what would it, what would a basic income do for me? You know, what are you not doing because you don't have a basic income, right? People thinking about that, I think, is very strong. Do you have a favorite quote? Uh, I have lots of favorite quotes. But, but uh, the one, one that comes to mind right immediately off the bat is, um, my religion is to do good. A controversial opinion, I believe, what almost... Nobody else does. What is this? This is I. This is me having um, the opposite opinion of what most people have. Yes, basically. Is is? Can you think of something where you uh, what nobody else or most people don't believe in, but you believe in? <laughs> uh. I mean, I already feel that that basic income actually answers that, but it's too easy. Um, you know, I I would just say that um, that, and this ties in with the uh, with my early response that my religion is to do good. I know I'm in the minority when I don't believe in a, a higher power. I believe that we have a, a limited existence, and we should do everything we can in the here and now while we're alive uh, and enjoy it. What's your newest, biggest insight? Um, so this is from the the newest uh, UBI pilot results. And uh, this is just something I, I learned today. And it's that comparing the, the, the two-year cohort to the 12-year cohort, uh, there was no difference really, when it came to work impacts, in which case, the, the, the theory that people don't work less in all of these various pilots we've seen, only because they only get the money for like a year or two, um, is kind of shot. Because if the, if the impact is the same between two-year and 12-year, then I think we can say that when we see these, these negligible work impacts, um, in these two-year groups across the country and the world. Um, I think it's an accurate depiction of how people would actually work with a lifelong permanent basic income. 
Ooh, that, that's actually I I have to um, dig right in there. Uh, it did in both these cases uh, did it not increase the work um, the, the work uh, time the total work time? It did not decrease the work time. Okay. Hmm. Interesting. Um, okay. Um, wh what would you have liked to known when you were twenty? I would have liked to know uh, like more of the details of how politics actually works. <laughs> like, um, you know, I started voting as soon as I could. You know, I, I, as soon as I was turned 18, I registered and began to vote. Um, but there's just, there's just so much like, to it, um, where back then I thought it was just about voting, and um, and yet there's more about like you know how we vote, the systems around how we vote, um, the interconnections between like media and politics and money in politics, especially in the U.S. Like it's just a giant mess, <laughs> and uh, I think it's an it's I think I think it would be helpful especially in the U.S., for there to be more education in school um, to kind of better appreciate and understand this stuff so that there's, you know, more of a more pride and more engagement even at a young age in, uh, in politics. Uh, I think one can, um, or I can call you an uh, activist. And what have you learned over the years? Um, what would advice would you give to someone else who sees a, a problem in uh, their society and uh, who wants to fix it, who wants to bring awareness to it? Um, uh, what advice can you give? My advice is to always look at this stuff as a marathon and not a sprint. And to know that no matter how much sense something makes is something, you know, some improvement that you're fighting for. It can be a long time to actually achieve that. And so don't, don't get discouraged that this doesn't like, you don't see like these impacts right off the bat. And, uh, and also just know that it, re it requires a, a lot of repetition. You know? <laughs> Like you, you need to say the same thing over and over and over and over and over again. Um, and that's just part of it. How, so not re necessarily related to UBI, but it can be related. You can use this as an answer. Um, but you don't have to. How would you spend $10 billion to make the world a better place? <laughs> Yeah, I could certainly put ten billion dollars to use. Um, first of all, like, uh, so I am the founder and president of a nonprofit called Income to Support All Foundation. Uh, there are two projects that I really want to get off the ground that are called Commingle and Bootstraps. Um, the The total cost to get both those off the ground um, is around three million dollars. So. Like 
that would be great <laughs> for at least a chunk of that <laughs> to go towards to make sure that that I these pivotal projects that I think could really make a difference um, are seen by the world. Uh, but beyond that, if I were to try to figure out a way to use all of that money, um, I think it would be uh, incredible to somehow utilize that to figure out like um, a permanent base income somewhere like in in some location you know not like a not like a pilot uh where you're not looking at this for like two years or whatever or 12 years even but you're like you're setting up something that is entirely sustainable um you know for forever essentially and so that what would that be like you to be able to show like a basic income in action somewhere in like some small country or you know, some like island, you know, nation or something like that. I think that would be um, very powerful. Um, do you happen to know Udit Galore? And if you do, what do you think of him? Who is this? Udit Galore. He's a um, he's a professor at uh, oh, I forgot the school now, uh, but he's an Ivy League professor. Uh, if you don't, then it's uh, I don't I don't think I do. Okay, well. Um, Thank you very much for taking the time. I think it was really interesting. And um, if you want to know uh, more about Scott and uh, his ideas and insight about UBI, um, uh, get his book, Let There Be Money, Understanding Modern, Modern Monetary Theory and Basic Income. Thank you very much, Scott. Thank you. It was, uh, it was enjoyable.